Hi, everyone. Good evening. Hi, really, it's, uh, you know, I don't get to do this at all, ever. And uh, so I'm really uh, thrilled, and I mean that, uh, to be here uh, to introduce a, uh, just a fantastic writer and a good friend. Um, I'm Carl Stokes, a friend of Will's. And, uh, and I, I met Will um, in some jungle uh, around the turn of the century. And if I was a good a storyteller as he is a writer, this would really get to be an exciting sort of thing, but it's not. So I'm only going to be a minute or so, and then uh, Will's going to come up. But on my way to meet Will, um, I remember uh, my traveling companion, whose name we won't throw into this. Will and I discussed this already. We're going to say enough troublesome thing that it's no sense in uh, somebody has to be outside to give an alibi. Uh, when they come pick us up. Uh, so I remember being on this plane on the way to the Caribbean, and, um, and when they started the engine, uh, smoke filled the cabin. Uh, smoke just came up from uh, the floor of the plane. And uh, the person I was traveling with and I looked at each other, uh, both to accuse the other of having planned this trip. Um, but no one else on the plane uh, seemed at all panicked or excited uh, about this, and so we figured it was normal, and then we landed in Cuba, and, uh, and Will was there to, to greet us in Cuba. Is that, I think that's right, that part of the story, and, uh, and so we, we uh, met Will in Cuba. I had, was meeting Will for the first time. Uh, he was a City College a grad student, and good to know that, and, and a journalist, and um, I didn't know anything about Will uh, until our, our adventure in, in Cuba. And, uh, and actually, uh, Will and I went back to Cuba together uh, a second time and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but the, my <laughs> I'm laughing. Uh, my adventures with Will in, in uh, Cuba uh, were really, really, really adventures. Uh, I was just talking to Carla Hayden about uh, the time that Will made me climb a mountain. Uh, now, Will's 25 years younger than I or so. And uh, so I was 50, and we were in the uh, Sierra Maestra. And uh, so this is a mountainous jungle region uh, where those of you might know, uh, Baptista uh, made his run for the revolution. And following that, this is the same jungle from which Castro uh, put his band of revolutionaries together uh, to overthrow uh, Baptista. And so we're hanging out uh, there in the jungle and, um, and staying out um, uh, a, a few nights there. Uh, it was the greatest because I've never ever s saw a sky like we saw that particular night, and, um, which I just mentioned. You saw shooting stars continuously. I, I've never seen such a sky. It was that many Carl Sagan billion and billions of stars in the sky. Uh, and then the next morning we got up and, and uh, Will said that he wanted to go to this particular place so he could climb this mountain that he had dreamed about, that he had researched, and wanted to climb. And I said uh, that I would go with him. And, um, and about a quarter of the way up, I said to Will, you go ahead. And, um, and I'll make everything safe for us down here when you get back. Anyway, I won't go through the long story, but we both eventually got to the top. Um, and we had a great time. And we stayed in many people's homes all over Cuba uh, because uh, we stayed in Havana one night, I believe. And then we got in a Jeep, and we just transversed the entire island as far as you could go, right up to uh, Guantanamo Bay. You know, we could actually look over and uh, we could see Haiti. I mean, we, we just did the entire island. And again, we, we did it a couple of times. But I felt at times that I was with, um, without being overly dramatic, I felt at times as if I was with young Hemingway or um, Hunter S. Thompson. I'm not kidding. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> The adventures that I can't talk about that we had, um, and he was telling me, and you sort of live vicarious 
Lee Thruham, uh, the night he uh, uh, spent on the Malibu beach with uh, Charlize Theron. No, wait a minute, is your wife here? Uh, yeah, okay. Anyway, so, but he was just interviewing her. That's 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 his story. Anyway, and uh, and and many other adventures, and sort of you do live vicariously through Will, uh, because the stories that he writes um, are not fiction, and they're big adventures. I don't know if you've read his writings in Esquire or GQ or uh, this particular book, uh, Vanquished, Vanished. Um, but they're not fiction, but they're big adventure uh, stories, uh, grand in scale, panoramic, uh, that span decades. Now, he didn't do all of the decades, but, um, but I remember once uh, at, at, when we were partying in Cuba, because I left him there, uh, and I traveled to one end of the island, and, and uh, Will jumps on this freighter to nowhere. And I said, what are you getting on this freighter for? By himself, he was getting on a freighter. He just said he wanted to experience it. And I said, okay. I did the mountain with you. I'm, I'm leaving now. <laughs> so, I, so he got on the freighter. Uh, but this, this is, uh, and so beyond that, he's been a great friend. Uh, just a wonderful guy, great big heart. Uh, we talk about many, many things, and uh, he's a great progressive, um, uh, and uh, now he's a great family man, um, and a, still a wonderful citizen, no matter how far he travels from Baltimore. He is a Baltimorean. He lives here, as you know, and uh, just a, a particularly great guy. So without going on and on about stuff he made me do, um, I do want to introduce and bring before us uh, Will Hilton. Uh, Will. Thank you for coming. I'm Will. I'm going to read from Vanished. So if you got the dates of the Springsteen concert wrong, um, I hope you'll stick around anyway. I wanted to, um, first of all, thank you all for coming, but then also thank our hosts tonight. Um, the Ivy Bookshop, uh, which is down in the street, uh, in Long Park, plays an incredibly important role in the literary life of this city. Uh, they're a home for writers and for readers. And they've sponsored this event. And uh, afterward, they will be selling copies of Vanished outside. Um, I hope you'll consider buying a copy not just to support me, but to support them. Sure. Okay, yep. Is that is that better? Okay. Great. So I was saying I hope that uh, you all will support the Ivy uh, tonight and in the future. Um, without strong local bookstores, publishing would be lost. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, at this particular stage in the history of publishing, it's a uh, valiant, but I think winnable battle against the forces of amalgamation um, to keep independent voices alive. I also want to thank the Pratt. Um, this is going to be hard for me to do without choking up, because um, my thanks to the Pratt go back about three decades. Um, as a kid, I came here to work on middle school projects. I grew up in Bolton Hill, and um, this was a short drive for my folks, and I can remember I don't even really have to remember the uh, overwhelming grandeur, the feeling of, um, of just this awestruck um, power of the building and of, of what's inside of it, because I still feel that way when I walk through the front doors here. I'm thrilled to find out that there's going to be a large-scale renovation by the same people who did Grand Central Station, which was so beautifully done in New York and which this building deserves. Um, and then, you know, the Pratt sort of more broadly was a home to me as I got older. Um, I, I spent every day after school at the Pratt Library in Roland Park, which is close to my close to my house now. I worked at the Baltimore Sun or wrote for the Sun for a while and, and worked at Baltimore Magazine. And this was the best place to come for research. I mean, if you wanted to know what had been written about Ben Cardin over a 30-year period, this was the only place to find out. Um, you know, even going down into the morgue at the Sun, uh, took longer and, and was more complicated, but they had a little card catalog system where you could just pull pull forth Ben Cardin's name and 
have just a tremendous number of citations right there. Um, it probably is still up there, um, although I haven't been here for that kind of research in a little while. Um, and you know, my family now lives back in Baltimore. We moved here about three years ago um, because it's the right place for us. Um, it feels like home in a way that no other place ever could. And um, my son attends the, the school uh, that I attended in Rowan Park, and we take him a couple times a week to the library there, the Pratt there. Um, so I say all of this um, because I think his love of reading, which is developing already, uh, like my love of reading, like probably yours and so many others, stems directly from this institution, and I'm just so grateful uh, to be here tonight and be able to um, be part of it. Before I start reading, um, I'd like to give you a little background uh, on Vanished so that you know um, what I'm talking about with the sections I've, I've chosen. Um, and I'll even take it a little further back than that. Um, I never intended to write a book. This just happened. Um, I, I always thought of myself really as, as a journalist. Um, and um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I thought of myself as a journalist before there was any reason to. Um, in, in middle school, I became really enamored of nonfiction writing. Um, I, I, I bought all of the collected works of a um, curmudgeon in Chicago, uh, Mike Royko, who wrote this uh, five times a week column, which is itself a feat, let me tell you, um, just kind of um, critiquing everything around him. Uh, P.J. O'Rourke and, and Hunter Thompson, who's in, in high school I had tattooed on my shoulder, so I'm thrilled by the comparison. <laughs> um, and then biographies of Twain and Baltimore's own Mencken. I mean, this, this stuff just, um, it, it, it seemed to me that being a reporter was clearly the only job worth having um, because you got to go wherever you wanted and um, meet anybody you wanted and ask them anything you wanted. And then you got to pick some totally different world to explore for the next project. Um, and as, I, as, I've, as I've worked my way through various jobs as a reporter at various newspapers and magazines, um, I would have to say that um, I've seen no evidence to the contrary. Um, it's a, it's, it seems to me like the perfect um, way to explore um, and, and to keep oneself constantly exposed to things that challenge you uh, physically and intellectually um, and in some, in some sense creatively. Uh, every project is different from the last. Every time you sit down to do it, your uh, sensation of having been expert at the end of your prior project is as gone uh, as, as you can imagine, and you have to start completely over again. And I think that, um, I think that keeps me alive. Um, so anyway, uh, all of these years as a reporter, um, I, I, I sort of had, had, had come to the sense that the perfect form for nonfiction is the magazine form. Um, because you can do in 8, 10, 12 pages and let's say 10,000 words an incredible amount. You can convey an incredible um, amount of description and information and if you're lucky, insight. Um, and and, and I've, I always have felt that it's nice to have a, a piece of work of a length that the reader can swallow whole um, and, and experience um, in entirety in one sitting. Um, so th so I had never really um, anticipated that I would write a book. Many years ago, people started to suggest, publishers and, and agents and editors and things would, would start to suggest that this or that article could maybe be a book. And it always seemed to me that, um, that there was no reason to do it. I had, I had written what I had to say. Um, and, and so this, 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 this feeling that I belonged in magazines um, came at a certain uh, anticipatable cost because um, magazine writers generally, except to other magazine writers, are not as well known and, and as well regarded as, as, as the writers of, of, of books and, and, and especially perhaps um, fiction, which has the lofty label literature um, and, and, and gets a, a great deal more respect than magazine writers. Um, but you know, to me and to, to others who have spent a lot of time in this magazine world, um, the work of, of, of people like Tom Genode or, or Mike Sager, who's from Baltimore, um, or, or Hunter Thompson's magazine writing. Um, it represents this whole um, literary achievement, this genre of literary achievement um, that, that, that has its own 
um, sort of incredible virtue distinct from that of any other form. So my ambition was always to try to be more like those people um, and stay in magazines and forego um, whatever else might come from, from writing books. And then I found this story. And uh, I had to write a book because um, there was no other way to hear the story myself. No one else was going to write it. Um, I, I was on an assignment from, from GQ magazine uh, where I was working at the time. And I was with a unit um, that's known as JPAC. They're based out of Hawaii. And their job is to travel the world to target sites which have been identified by their historians, um, where uh, it's believed that US service members uh, who died in wars over the last century may still be and may be found and may be recovered and returned home at long last. Um, and that was about all I knew, was that they were planning on showing me around and uh, letting me see how they work, the sort of nuts and bolts of their operation. And that was good enough. At the time, it seemed like a great story, um, just this sort of elite military unit uh, doing this really unusual work in all the far-flung corners of the globe. And the first place they took me on a, on a tour of the multiple uh, kinds of sites that they, uh, that they explore was a barge way out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Um, and they didn't tell me much about what they were doing there, um, but it was clear that they were doing something because there were a couple dozen, maybe three dozen um, members of the military from all the different services swarming around, incredibly busy, uh, and doing all of this uh, scuba or, or diving, hard hat diving. It's actually called surface supply diving. This is the one where you put the big helmet on and you know, a whole suit, and uh, you have a tether that, that pumps the air to you. And, uh, and so these guys, these Navy divers, deep sea divers, an incredible set of people, um, incredible skill set. Um, we're jumping off in pairs while all the other divers stood around and monitored these huge machines at the edge of the barge. And then historians were moving around because when the divers would, a pair of divers would come up and another pair would go down, the historians would have to look through all this rubble that the divers had brought up and see if they could spot anything that looked like it might be related to an American aircraft or ship. And so I started trying to figure out more about what they were doing. And, and I was still interested in the sort of nuts and bolts of how they worked, but um, I was also getting kind of interested in what was down there at the bottom of the ocean, and um, and they they wouldn't really tell me. Um, I've since come to understand a little more about the reasons why, um, but when I left, I, I still didn't really know what kind. I knew it was an airplane. I didn't know how many men were aboard. I didn't know what kind of airplane it was. I didn't know any. I didn't have any idea how it got there. I assumed it had been shot down. But there was just very little information. And a guy whispered to me, uh, the lead anthropologist on the mission, who had not been terrifically friendly up until that point, uh, but he whispered to me, before you go, uh, you have to promise me that you won't write this story until you, uh, until you look up Pat Scannon. And uh, that name has been on the forefront of my mind ever since. Pat Scannon is the central character um, in Vanished. And uh, I went out, I found out who he was, and I went out to meet him in California, where he lives, and where he works as a, a biotech researcher. And um, I found out that he had spent 10 years looking for the debris that was underneath of the barge. Um, and I found out that it, it came from a B-24 bomber that was shot down in the fall of 1944. And then I started to find out how much wasn't known. Uh, by anyone. Um, nobody knew how much of the plane was there. Um, nobody knew why it was there. It had been reported in mission reports from the period as being somewhere else. And people had been looking for it. And uh, nobody knew exactly how many men had escaped while it was burning from the sky. Uh, but they knew that some had. And uh, nobody knew even how many uh, or, or who they were, or what might have happened to them. And it would be even a few more years before all that stuff became clear. Um, so I, uh, I had a, uh, a deadline, but I, <laughs> I went and did one more interview. Um, and I found one of the people who was waiting for those answers, waiting to find out who was on board the plane. And the reason Tommy Doyle was waiting was because his dad had been on the crew. And uh, Tommy's this big, powerful guy. He's a football coach in West Texas. 
And his wife, Nancy, and, and he and I sat together for hours and hours, but it was only a few minutes before Tommy was crying as he told me the stories that he'd grown up with. And that's, that's where I'm going to start reading tonight. When Tommy Doyle's mom died in 1992, Tommy inherited a big wooden trunk. It was about four feet long and two feet wide. And sitting on the floor of his ranch house in West Texas, it came up to his knee. Tommy could remember seeing that trunk all his life, tucked at the foot of his mother's bed with books and blankets piled on top, but he'd never looked inside. There was always something private in the way his mom regarded the trunk, so for a while, Tommy left it shut. His wife Nancy was more curious, but she didn't want to seem nosy. I decided to let him open it in his own time, she said later, but it seemed like he never would. Nancy was patient. She waited weeks, then months, then a year. Tommy never opened the trunk. He dragged it to a back room, shut the door, and walked away. Nancy knew enough about Tommy to have a guess what bothered him. There were painful rumors in his past, stories that cast a shadow over his life, over who he was, who his daddy had been, and why Tommy never knew him. Those were things that Tommy and his mom never discussed. There might be clues inside the trunk, and he wasn't about to start looking for them now. Tommy had been just 15 months old when his dad shipped off to war in 1944, and Jimmy Doyle never came back. Or anyway, that was the official story. That's the story his mother told him. His daddy's plane went down in the Pacific Ocean, some patch of islands called Palau. The crew was never found. But Tommy heard another story growing up, one he wasn't supposed to hear. As a kid, he heard his uncles whispering. Jimmy was still alive, they said. He'd survived the crash. He'd come back from the war. He was living in California with a new wife and two daughters. He just didn't care about Tommy anymore. Tommy never believed that story. Mostly he didn't, but he wondered. In time, he grew into a powerful kid, tall and fast, played basketball on the state championship team, starred in high school football. In one game, he scored off two interceptions and kicked the winning field goal, but underneath, the hurt and suspicion coursed through Tommy's life. Nothing about the family stories made sense. If his dad was dead, then why did the military send his mom letters that said they were looking for him? Why did the army say that some of the men on his plane escaped, but they never said which ones? And why didn't Tommy's mom remarry when at least two good men had asked? She and Tommy scraped by on nothing. For a while, they lived in an apartment with no front door. But she never told Tommy that she missed his dad, or loved him, or hoped he would come back. She rarely mentioned Jimmy at all. Never told Tommy what his father did or loved. Never described his voice or his laugh. She held Jimmy close like she couldn't stand to share what little she had left, not with anyone, not even Tommy. Football was supposed to be Tommy's ticket. He got a full ride to Texas Tech in 1961 and joined the Air Force ROTC to earn money on the side. For the first time in Tommy's life, he had a future and not just a past. If he played hard, he might go pro. If not, he'd stick with the Air Force and follow his dad into the sky. From the first day of practice, Tommy took off. By junior year, he was on the starting lineup alongside future pros like Donnie Anderson and Dave Parks. By the end of that year, when Parks was chosen as the first pick in the NFL draft, Tommy was tied with him for the most touchdown receptions, and he'd set a school record for the most in a single game. He had great hands, Donnie Anderson said. We called him Touchdown Tommy. Anderson got the call in 1965, drafted by the Packers in the first round for more money than anyone in history. A lot of people thought Tommy Doyle would be next. A lot of people still think he might have been if things had broken differently or if they hadn't broken at all. It started with his shoulders in spring training. They felt loose, wobbly, sore. He'd go to make a play and his arms just wouldn't do it. He put his joints on ice and slept in the locker room all summer to stay close to the rehab weights. When that didn't work, he moved to defensive end, but the play was rough and Tommy was lean. He kept taking hard hits. In one game, he came down wrong on a jump, and both of his legs got crushed. By the middle of the season, between his shoulders and his knees, he knew his game was over. He lost his spot on the starting lineup. 
than his place on the team. Then he had to give up his position in ROTC, and with it, his last hope for the future. Tommy was working in a windowless room at an airplane factory in North Texas when a friend introduced him to Nancy. She came from a prominent family near Dallas, but after she and Tommy got together, she followed him back to West Texas. They got married, bought a ramshackle house in the town of Snyder, and Tommy took a job coaching football at the local school. While Dave Parks roared through a decade in the NFL and Donnie Anderson won two Super Bowls, Tommy was on the fields of West Texas shouting for teenagers to hustle. Then a new head coach came in and fired everybody, including Tommy. A friend was starting an oil company, and Tommy went all in. He poured his retirement money into the business, and he poured in Nancy's, too. Then the oil market bottomed out, and Tommy lost it all again. Now he was in his 30s with no job, no savings, no plan, no dreams, and two young kids, one of whom was sick. I was just born crooked, his son Casey Doyle said. One day it was asthma racking Casey's lungs. Another day he was coughing up blood. His little legs were so weak he had to wear metal braces. The medical bills were crushing. One morning Tommy took Casey to a new doctor and spent the whole day waiting to be seen. At five o'clock the doctor came out to explain that Tommy's name was on a list of people who couldn't pay. Tommy took any job he could find. He mowed lawns. He patched leaky plumbing. He regrouted tile. He took a job at the local bank, but the oil crash was hurting banks, too. When one of Tommy's friends got laid off, she went home and shot herself. When the bank called in a loan on another guy, he threatened to blow up the branch, and the whole town came out at 3 o'clock to see if it would happen. In a good week, Tommy might catch a job building a shed in someone's yard. In a bad one, he turned to his friends in the church for help. When another coaching job came up, Tommy Doyle grabbed it. It was only junior high, but he figured that was a blessing in disguise. This was West Texas, after all. A varsity coach was never safe. A few bad seasons and he'd be packing. Tommy had been down that road before. He promised himself that he'd never put ambition over his kids. When the high school offered him a varsity coaching position, he took a JV spot instead. When another school offered to make him head coach, Tommy thanked them anyway. For 25 years, he stayed under the radar, mostly running the JV team and helping varsity on the side. He did that for us, Casey said. He did that for his family, and he never said a word. But inside, Tommy always wondered. Not about coaching, about everything else. He wondered what else might have been, what would have been, if his dad had come home. He wondered who he might have become and what he could have given his own kids. He wondered if there was anything to those old family stories. Was it possible that his dad survived? If so, how long? Did he really come back? Why would he refuse to see Tommy? Was there any explanation that could make it all okay? Tommy pushed the questions down, but they were always there. The slightest mention of his dad would bring the old coach to tears. The doubt lingered inside Tommy like a weight. It was there when he drove to work in the morning and when he came home at night, unfolding his long, sore body to watch a game tape. It was there when he called out drills on the football field and when his kids opened their presents on Christmas morning. Sometimes it seemed to Tommy as though he'd spent his whole life waiting for something, waiting for a future that never came, waiting for answers to make sense of the past, waiting for a sign of that 25-year-old kid with the cocky grin and the jaunty hat, the rascal eyes that stared back at Tommy from the one good portrait he'd ever seen. On weekends, his mother came to the house and played with the kids and helped in the kitchen, but she never mentioned Tommy's dad. She never asked Tommy what he heard or believed, never told him what she knew. Everything stayed packed up and locked out of way, pushed out of view like the trunk. So Tommy had spent his whole life wondering what to believe. And the search that the guys were doing in the Pacific on that barge meant everything to him. And after I talked to Tommy, it started to mean quite a bit to me as well. Um, after I filed my story, I couldn't shake the curiosity. Uh, the, Tommy's experience was just too substantive. The rumors that circulated through his family were, were hard to let go of. I wanted to find out what had really happened to his dad, and I wanted to see through 
the rest of the recovery project taking place on that barge and what would be determined from the wreckage that was brought up. And so I just kept reporting and the years went by and I realized I was writing a book. I guess I realized it after only a few months. Um, I, I contacted my agent and I said, I know I said I never want to write a book, but I've changed my mind. I'm already writing it. I might as well get some kind of arrangement with a publisher. And, and we made a deal. And since then I've traveled about 60,000 miles looking for the answers, um, scuba diving literally in the Pacific, um, but figuratively through the uh, ocean of documents at the National Archives as well, um, and hiking through the jungle uh, to search for secret bunkers. Fortunately, Carl taught me how to do that. Uh, and meeting amateur explorers who try to contribute to the effort of the military on their own. Um, like Pat Scannon, the guy in California. And along the way, I've found a new respect for a lot of things. Um, one is for the special character of grief that people like Tommy endure. There are 47,000 Americans uh, who are still considered missing from the Pacific theater of World War II. That's about the same number as the total number of combat casualties in Vietnam. So if you think about the incredible uh, pervasive uh, agony um, that our society endured in the Vietnam War. Um, the same number of families had someone go missing in the Pacific. It, it's just not something most of us know about. Um, I also um, have developed a, a new kind of understanding for the, for the military teams who, who do this work to bring these men home. Um, they face grave dangers. There's, a, there's one of these teams right now in India. I'm friends with the lead anthropologist. I just got back from the South Pacific where I was on a, another recovery site with him, and his next stop was going to be up in the, up in the China-Burma-India theater at very high altitude, um, where a plane wreck um, contains uh, World War II-era remains that had been recovered already by the military unit and were uh, on a cargo jet coming home when they crashed. So the, the military team that was doing the recovery work now has to be recovered by another military recovery team. Um, the, the divers going down to the bottom of the ocean also face an irreducible risk. There's only so much you can do to stay safe in an environment like that. Um, and, and, and I would also say that it, it gave me a new respect for the military generally. Um, the military is an amazing, uh, it's just, it's, it's just a, it's a breathtaking force. Um, but it's, it, there's, a, there's a special corner of the military that does this work that's really fundamentally uh, humanitarian in nature. It's not about waging war, it's about healing the wounds of war among these families. And I think, it, I think it's really a powerful thing that our country uh, does that and that that's part of our, um, our military structure, this promise to leave no man behind. Um, so the, the, the final thing I was hoping to read to you um, is, is a passage that's, that's about um, Tommy Doyle's dad who uh, was a gunner on this particular plane that the book describes and, and focuses on. Um, and Tommy's dad's name was Jimmy Doyle, and Jimmy's best friend was Johnny Moore. And the two of them, um, well, I'll read it to you. At 25, Jimmy Doyle was one of the oldest men in his crew. He came from the flatlands of West Texas, raised by a single dad who'd left his mom and four siblings in Arkansas years earlier, heading across the high plains with only Jimmy at his side. Growing up in the heart of the Dust Bowl, Jimmy had gone to work with his father, helping to lay stone walls and build fences on the Llano Estacado Caprock. They spent one summer pouring a road base for Route 180 between the towns of La Mesa and Snyder, staking the shoulder with wooden rails and pouring in stone and crushed lime then hitching up the horses to drag a chain across the top. At night, they bedded down with the animals, cooking over a campfire with the other men. Jimmy's hands were calloused and strong, but he still had the lanky physique of a teen. His blonde hair was perpetually tossed over a boyish face of freckles. One day at gunnery school in Laredo, he was struggling with a heavy pack, the blisters bleeding on his feet when his wiry frame gave out. He felt a surge under his arms as another private hoisted him up, carrying him down the field until his strength returned. After that, Jimmy and Johnny Moore were rarely apart. 
They bunked together, ate together, and stayed up late talking. Jimmy told Johnny about life on the plains, the shade of the elm trees he longed for, and the little boy, Tommy, he'd left behind with Merle, the only woman he'd ever loved. Johnny told Jimmy about the sultry woods of Arkansas, a place that Jimmy no longer remembered, but where his mother and siblings still lived. Johnny was five years younger than Jimmy, but he was a head taller and laced with muscle. His dark brown hair scooped into a swirl, and he beamed the easy sideways smile of a lifelong country boy. Growing up on the Desarc Bayou, he was the youngest of nine kids and the second son, but he was named for his father. Most folks in Desarc called him John Jr. His dad and sister called him Bud. In the service, he was Johnny. I guess I'll stop there. I wanted to open it up uh, for questions as well. So, um, does anyone have any questions? Or should I keep reading? I'll keep reading. Okay. Life in Desarc hadn't changed much in a century or two. Johnny's dad woke early each morning for a bowl of corn mush and a mug of hot water, then headed out to fish the hidden corners of the White River, bagging catfish and buffalo fish as big as 50 pounds. In the evening, he dragged them home to put on ice and ship to St. Louis. When Johnny was little, he stayed home with his mom, Addie, a husky, whistling figure who tended the chickens and milked the cow and raised fields of cotton and corn beside the jumble of beans and peas and potatoes in the household garden. The other kids sometimes helped Addie do laundry in the outdoor wash tub or hang the clothes to dry on a line between trees. When things got busy, Johnny hung by his sister, Melba, who was six years older. He was my pet, Melba said. He was my baby. He was my doll. In place of toys, Johnny had cousins and nephews to race and chase through woodland acres. Two of his sisters were so much older that one had a son, Doyle, who was just ten months younger than Johnny, and another had a boy named Charles, born just two years after that, the year the White River climbed so high in Desarc that it breached the pages of the New York Times. By the time the three boys were old enough to walk, they were running. They'd skinny dip in the river behind the cemetery and climb up high in the persimmon trees to ride the branches to the ground. When school began, they made the two-mile walk along railroad tracks by the river, tossing rocks into the water to see who could make the biggest splash. The year Johnny turned 13, the river surged over the banks again, sweeping through the first floor of the house. Johnny was surging that year, too. In high school, he was six feet tall with size 11 and a half shoes. His hands were strong enough to crack a walnut. On weekends, Johnny and his dad would slip away together, crawling up the malarial gulches of the river to hook fish. Johnny would clean them with a cleaver he'd cut from a railroad plate. Back home, he rounded up his cousins and nephews to smack a baseball or hurl a football until they were all falling down. Then they'd clamor into someone's kitchen to belt down beans and broth. Once a year, on the 4th of July, the town filled with farmers, everyone converging to park their wagons by the river and bustle into Caskey's hardware or chop a hunk of cheese from the block on the counter at Robinson's Mercantile. At dusk, they drifted back to the waterfront, eating together at long picnic tables and sleeping below their wagons under lilting cricket song. When Johnny got a football scholarship to junior college, he trundled off to spend four days each week on campus. Then he'd hurry home for long weekends, demanding a pile of fresh biscuits from whichever sister he found first. Melba, Mary, Flossie, it didn't matter. They all had Addie's recipe. One day at Melba's, Johnny spotted a new girl across the road. She had downturned eyes and a broad, open face, and she'd just moved with her family from the little town of Hazen. Her dad had a job in the rice fields. Dirty work, but it paid. By summer, Johnny and Catherine Price were dating. By fall, they were hinting at marriage. Whatever passion some men had for war, Johnny had none. The thought of combat was alien to him, and the thought of leaving Catherine worse. When the draft notice came, he handed it to his mother, and she ran away. His dad's face turned red, and he swore he'd never vote for a Democrat again. Johnny's sister reassured him. It's only a while, Melba said. You'll be back before you miss us. But Melba knew it wasn't true, and Johnny knew it too. On the last day before he left, he stood with Melba on the front porch. 
They looked across the road to Catherine's house and the woods beyond. Melba, Johnny said quietly in a voice she would never forget, I don't think I'm ever going to see you again. Oh, she snapped, don't say that, Johnny. Well, I just don't think I will, he said. I'll stop there. Um, we have a few more minutes if anyone would like to go to the mic and ask a question. Could, could you fast forward to the right before the plane went down and tell us where the plane was from and how it figured in the battle of yeah. that area? I understand that that may have been a strategic mistake for the U.S. Yes, military. It probably was, that. yeah. Um, the, so the, the plane went down in, in the Palau Islands, um, which are 700 miles north of New Guinea, so way, way out in the ocean. You can kind of triangulate there if you go east from the Philippines and north from central New Guinea. Um, the plane had been stationed on a, a tiny, tiny little island called Wakti, um, which was about 5,000 feet long. Um, and so it was a tough place to get a B-24 that's fully loaded into the air. Some of the planes didn't get into the air. They would bounce down the rough runway and end up diving right into the drink. Um, but the ones that made it had a 700-mile journey to Palau to lay down uh, a bomb load with the rest of their formation and soften the target for the landing uh, that was coming two weeks later in the middle of September. The landing was uh, scheduled to be and did in fact turn out to be um, on the southern island of the chain, uh, one of two southern islands called Peleliu. Peleliu is a battle that uh, if you're a Marine you know all about. Uh, the Marines call it the bitterest battle of the war. Uh, it was just an incredibly bloody, awful, hand-to-hand uh, -hand fight for control of a place called Nosebleed Hill, which if you're ever there, you'll find that there, it is still filled with the wreckage of tanks and aircraft and human remains. It only takes a few minutes to find any of those. Um, the decision to take uh, Peleliu and Palau was was controversial uh, within just a few years of the war. Um, the reason it was taken at the time is because MacArthur's column across the south had uh, been given preference by Roosevelt at a, at a meeting in Hawaii. Um, and, and so the two, this two primary thrusts of the offensive, one of them going sort of directly toward Taiwan um, across the Central Pacific, and the other coming sort of across the belly of of the Pacific, uh, led by MacArthur, um, it, we're, we're, we're moving in parallel for, for the first year or so of the war. And then a decision had to be made as to which should uh, take precedence. And MacArthur's side was chosen. MacArthur felt very strongly um, that it was important to take Palau. Some of the uh, Central Pacific commanders, especially Admiral Halsey, disagreed vehemently. In hindsight, they were probably right. Um, the, the, the fight to fight that hard um, against 25,000 Japanese troops who are that deeply embedded in a battle that would, in some form or another, last for 18 months um, was probably not justified um, uh, by, by the strategic advantage of, of having a foothold there. Um, but I think, I think it's also important to remember that the guys who fought and died on Peleliu had no way to know that and that when we think about the losses to, to their families and, and the courage that they exhibited both in uh, preparing the islands for the landing with this bombing campaign or in landing on the beaches in a battle that's now mostly forgotten, um, that, that, that valor was every bit as great as, as that of, say, the Normandy landing, which gets, I think, a great deal more attention. Any other questions? Well, um, why did you concentrate on the Doyles? Was there, were there other families you considered, or what was compelling about, about them? I thought, that, I thought that's a good question. I, I, I do have um, other families that are maybe almost as, as, as much explored as, as the Doyles, but, um, but I thought that the Doyles, and, and Tommy Doyle in particular, got to a couple of really important um, things that I wanted to explore in the book. Um, one was that um, I, I, I have found by interviewing all the families from this plane and, and many others that there's a there's a, a an enduring 
quality to the grief of MIA families that crosses generations and, and doesn't go away with time. Um, and, I, and I think it's really important um, to in, that the book get to that and, and under, help people understand what it is to live with the uncertainty. Um, you know, the, in the literature, the, the psychologists who study um, MIA grief refer, refer to it as ambiguous loss. Um, and, and they talk about um, it, that this is a story with no ending. And I think that's, that's really a good choice of, of verbiage there. Um, you know, the, the experience of not knowing what happened to the person um, is distinct from the experience of knowing that they're gone. Um, and, and, and oftentimes what you see in a family is um, that there are, there are stories like the one Tommy grew up with, um, not usually that um, developed, um, where, where they wonder if the person uh, survived or not. And so I thought that Tommy's story was a particularly poignant one, and it also turned out to be one that was you know, much more substantive and had a lot more um, sort of credibility than, than the typical one. I have two quick questions. One is, um, who did you how do you decide who's going to do these back notes or whatever they are <laughs> on the back of the book? Um, and are the, are, the, are the families aware of, of the efforts that are going on to try to, to, try to locate the, um, the, the, the plane or, or whatever else they're looking for? Yeah, the families, the families know the story. And it's, it's really, there's, until you meet with these MIA families and talk to them about their loss, it's hard to really imagine the power of the grief. I was, I was on a radio program for about an hour yesterday, and we talked for maybe the first 40 minutes or so, and then we started taking calls. And we got calls from some uh, MIA families. And, uh, you know, the, the, the grief is immediately apparent in their voices. And most of, most of the folks can't talk about it for long before they can't talk anymore. Um, the tears are right there. The wound is very fresh. Um, and, and, and because the families never know for sure whether they should give up hope, um, they pass it down. So you talk to families who, uh, you know, a woman who might be having um, health issues. I know a woman up in Maine who has some really serious health issues. And she uh, was afraid that she was not going to make it. And uh, so her uncle uh, disappeared, is, is an MIA. And uh, she promised her mother that she would find out what happened to Uncle Joe. And then she made her kids promise her that they would find out what happened to Uncle Joe if she didn't make it. So this, this stuff gets passed down, and it doesn't go away. And so then on the other side of it, to answer your question, the relief you see in these families when answers start to materialize, the, the, the sense of unburdening is as joyful as anything that I've I've experienced. Um, it's a sense that at long last they can move on. That uh, truth allows life to continue. The other question was about the blurbs. You know, you just send the book out and you hope somebody likes it. <laughs> yeah. I am uh, finishing a, a magazine article um, for the New York. I write for the New York Times Magazine mostly now. Um, and that's what I was just uh, doing some reporting down in the South Pacific, where I got to spend some time with a military anthropologist who I've known through the years. Um, and that article will probably be out in a couple weeks. It's about, um, it's war-related. It's about, um, I probably shouldn't say too much, the times will get mad. It's, uh, it's, it's about, the, it's about a, a, a battlefield where, um, where a lot of American uh, Marines went missing in, in, a, in a peculiar way, and uh, and where there's now finally an answer, and it, it involves a complete rewriting of history for that region. Um, and I've been allowed to go and look at it and, and speak to the people who are behind it. Um, and it's 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 a really I probably shouldn't say anymore, but it's a, it's a really kind of an amazing story. Unfortunately, the island is the most miserable place I've ever been. It makes Calcutta look like Dubai. I mean. <laughs> I don't mind dirt and mud, but that place is rough. I pick them, but I, they have to be approved. Yeah, And sometimes they'll come to me and say, would you do this? And the answer is always no.
think we're running out of time. I'll be happy to sign books outside. Did you have a question? Well, no, but there is a connection to Baltimore. It's funny you should ask. Um, this guy, Pat Scannon, who spent so many years of his life and still does doing this search, um, has over time been joined by a great number of people from all over the country. And they've, they've given their effort a name, the Bent Prop Project, Bent Prop like Bent Propeller, which is usually the first thing you recognize when you come upon an airplane crash site in the jungle. First thing you can really make out is the, the prop. Uh, and one of the people who joined the Bent Prop Project and has been just an incredible asset to it is a guy uh, from Crofton. He actually owns a little bar in Crofton called the Crofton Cantina. And he has a spectacular eye for old photographs. And so he has, uh, he is leading the effort to resolve uh, the last few really peculiar mysteries in that part of the world. Um, and he's, he's gotten very far. In fact, I'm convinced that he's figured it out. Um, but the, there has to be uh, some more sort of peer review um, and, some, and some excavation. Um, but but I, I went with him uh, deep, deep into the jungle to find a secret prison that the Japanese hid, um, and, and we found it. And it was just, it was just a stunning, stunning thing to see. Um, he, he had gone from all these old photographs from the war and, and modern photographs, and I don't think it's giving too much away to say that he works for a government agency that's got three letters and often spends time overseas um, analyzing photographs so he knows what he's doing. Um, and and the, the bar is his sort of side thing that he does, so his real expertise bears directly on this effort. And he's... Uh, He's, he's, when you're in the jungle and you see the place that he found, there's no question that it is what it's said to be. But you just have to send other people in to confirm it. That's still underway. Anything else? Yeah. That's a good question. Pat Scannon is such a cool guy. And... Uh, He's been very supportive of me writing this book, but he's also dodged the media for so many years that we've had to kind of figure out how to how to tell his story in a way that um, that didn't involve him making public appearances, because all he wants to do is get back there and keep looking for planes. Um, he, has, he has zero interest in, in publicity around this. I think his story is important, and I think it's inspiring. But uh, he would have been just as happy to do the work and go to his grave knowing that he'd done it. Um, he's now reached out to a lot of other groups. So this, this organization, Bent Prop, formed up around him. And, and has brought people like the one I just described into this organization to um, continue the search. Sometimes, uh, every year they go for weeks, sometimes for over a month. Um, and it, there may be as many as 15 of them. I mean, it's hard to get into the group. You have to show some kind of expertise. Um, but so that, it's expanded in that way. He's also made partnerships um, with other organizations like the Scripps Institute out in La Jolla, California. And they've, they've been going over uh, to the islands uh, with Pat and with Bent Prop um, to send autonomous subs under the water and scan the seafloor for evidence of wreckage. Um, he's, he's found an amazing high school program in robotics that's doing similar kinds of work. Um, and the kids at Stockbridge High School in Michigan, you should look them up. It's, it's amazing. And the kids have, have built a couple of uh, submarines where they can go down and do the same kind of work that Scripps is doing. Um, so he's still looking. There are a couple hundred aircraft that are missing in that area, in that particular island cluster. And I, he's either going to find them all or die trying. Okay. Um, Will, thank you so much for coming. Thank We'd you. like to thank the audience. There are plenty books.